And we are spiritually porous, is what I felt the Lord impressed upon me this morning early. In other words, that means that we are able to be influenced by and even absorb our environment. Something is porous, it's able to take on the substance, the aromas, the fragrances of something that it spends time with. If you, you can enhance or influence the flavor of foods by storing them together. And uh, we, are, we take on the flavors and the aromas of our environment in the natural and in the spiritual. I used to work in the food industry. I would come home from work sometimes and my wife would tell me that I smelt like baked goods. I smelt like I'd been making bread, which I had been. And I brought that aroma home with me. And uh, when Sister Natalie worked in the seafood section, she brought other aromas home with her. But I was thinking particularly, I was just recently out in the Tanami Desert in the Northern Territory and Brother Peter's been out with me several times. And when you go out into the desert and visit those churches out there in the wintertime, it's very, very cold out there at night. And when they, we have church outside and it's a wonderful experience. It's really like nowhere else in the world. And on a cold night in service in the desert, there are 44-gallon drums that have been cut into half to make fire pits and they will light those and on a cold night you may have four, five, six of those spread throughout the congregation on the ground and so no matter where you sit you, the smoke affects you and when you leave there and you return home and you open your suitcase and you come back to Perth you are hit with the smell of the campfires and uh, it, because you've been in that environment, your clothing and your hair, it takes on the smell of the campfire. And we are spiritually like that. And what I felt the Lord impressed upon me this morning was be careful of whose fires you sit around. Be careful whose fires you're being smoked with, if I can put it like that. Because you might leave that location or the, possibly the, those people and think, I'm unaffected by that, but then there's a, there's a smell. There's something that we, we are porous spiritually. Amen. So I just wanted to leave that with you this morning. I have a few announcements before we get into the Word. Um, ladies, you have prayer this Friday night here at the church at 7.30. And as we've been announcing, ladies, your end-of-year breakup is going to be held on the 23rd of November at Whiteman Park. Sister Natalie will give you more of the details about the exact location. But the important details as far as today is concerned is that you need to RSVP to Sister Natalie today if you're planning on going. And your $30, which goes towards that event, needs to be to Sister Natalie by next Sunday, the 17th. So that's for you ladies. You have prayer this Friday night. and You also have your end-of-year event. And you can talk to Sister Natalie about that. Amen. Young people, I've got a couple of announcements for you as well. Uh, on the 22nd of November, so I think that's not Saturday coming, but the Saturday after. Friday, there you go. I knew I'd get somebody to help me out. Uh, at 7.30 at Philadelphia Tabernacle, there's a joint youth service with the young people from Brother Paulus's church. Brother Moses can give you more details about that. And also, young people, you're having an end-of-year lunch on the 14th of December, it's at 12 p.m. I'm not going to work out what day of the week that is because I'll get it wrong. Um, and it is $35 per person. You're 
apparently going to a Brazilian steakhouse buffet. So you need to RSVP to Brother Moses. Can older than young people go to that buffet? Um, by the 30th of November, if you are wanting to attend that. Amen. Also, if you are planning on attending General Conference, uh, we are looking for people who are willing to be involved in ushering. If you put your hand up for that, it does not mean you're there for every service. You can do one service, you can do two. If you are going and you're willing to be involved, which I would encourage you to be because many hands make light work, um, please give me your name after the service. Amen. And last but not least, we've had a few birthdays. On Friday, I believe it was, was young Daniel Takina's birthday and also young Caleb Swiles, who's upstairs, obviously. And today, I believe, is Sister Alice's birthday hiding down the back there in the corner. So happy birthday to those folk. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to Hebrews chapter 12. And while you're turning there and there, hopefully our technology is going to cooperate with us, we're going to pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the wonderful anointing that we feel in your house today. And Lord, we just ask that as we open your word again, Lord, this morning that you'd speak to us. You'd open our understanding. You'd challenge us, Lord God, and help us to desire, Lord, to be what you want us to be. We ask you for your anointing upon me as your vessel today. Lord, we'll lift up Brother Marlon's father as well this morning, Lord. You know the exact details of his illness and his condition, and as our brother's preparing to go and visit him, we pray, Lord, that you would minister healing to him in Jesus' name, Lord God, and that you would bless this time as our brother goes to see his father in the Philippines, we pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen, amen. Amen. So we are reading Hebrews chapter 12, and there's going to be a reasonable amount of Scripture. But, you know, I I do want to have the habit of putting on the wall, but I want to encourage you to also use your Bibles. If I go through Scripture quickly and you get lost, stay with me, not with your Bible, but if you can, it's always good to to follow along in in the Word of the Lord. Amen. There's something, you can call me old-fashioned, I'm old enough that that's not offensive anymore. But there's something about holding the Word of God in our hands. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 10. says, For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness, under them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Amen. I'm starting a series today. on the title, the title of this series is called The Partakers of His Holiness. And uh, I want to encourage you to try to be here for all of it. I think we should all be encouraged to be in church all the time anyhow. But it is a series that you will benefit from more if you are here for all of it than pieces thereof. So, amen. Amen. As chapter 11 of Hebrews closes out what is sometimes called the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11 lists a whole list of people from the scripture that were faithful and trusted God some receiving deliverance others not receiving deliverance but as that chapter closes out 
Chapter 12 begins by reminding us that with all these witnesses that have gone before us, that we should lay aside both sin and weight that does easily ensnare us or entangle us and that we should run this race with patience. And the key to running this race with patience, running this race is what I was trying to say, with patience, is that we are to look to Jesus, who is both the author and the finisher of our faith. He starts it and he will finish it. Amen. And then leading up to the text that we read, the passage instructs us to remember that when God chastens, now that's not a word that we use a lot in modern society, but that word chasten means to correct or to discipline. So when God chastens us, we are told that we should not hate it when He does, nor should we faint or give up from that experience. But in fact, when He does chasten us, when we are chastened by the Lord, we ought to recognize that it is a part of Him being our Father, being our Heavenly Father. The Bible lets us know that a son who is not chastened is like a fatherless child, like a child with no boundaries, no discipline in their life. And the Scripture tells us, in the passage leading up to our text that when our natural fathers chastened us we gave them reverence and respect some of us took a little longer to get to that than others some of us got more chastened because of that process but the goal was always that we might be steered in a particular direction and the writer of Hebrews says how much more should we subject ourselves to the chastening of the Lord and find life by doing so. Amen. And so we come to our text that we read, and it lets us know that our natural fathers chastened us after their own pleasure. It doesn't mean that they enjoyed it, but what it means is as they thought was right for us. That's what that means. But our Heavenly Father, who is a perfect Father, does so for our profit and our benefit which our natural fathers did as well. The difference being natural fathers are imperfect, our heavenly father is perfect. And the natural father's chastening and discipline produces fruit in this life. Our heavenly father's chastening is designed to produce fruit in this life and in the next. Amen. In the moment or when it's happening, chastening is never pleasant. It's not an enjoyable experience. But afterwards, the scripture tells us that it yields or it produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness. It gets us back on track. So when we experience that chasing, we are told that then we ought to lift up our hands, strengthen our knees, get our feet back on the straight path because we don't want to be spiritually lame and going the wrong way. Amen. Then we are told in verse 14, I believe it is, that we are to follow or pursue that original meaning of that word has the idea of going after something with the intent of catching it we are to follow or to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which we will not see god amen so there's there's a lot in i haven't read all of those verses i've tried to just go over them but there's a a lot in those that passage from the very beginning of chapter 12 up to our text but to just to try to condense that or distill that a little bit these are the main points God loves His church, both individuals and corporately, as a heavenly Father. And as a good Father should, He chastens us, both individually 
and corporately. Amen. And it is that when we allow our hands to hang down and our feet get crooked and go off track, he, he chastens us. And when we receive that chastening, the right response is to straighten up and walk right. Amen. We don't, we don't enjoy that chastening, but the profit or the benefit of the chastening of the Lord is that we might be partakers of His holiness. And we are told to follow peace with all men and holiness. So we're talking about partakers of His holiness. To partake in something means to... There are a few applications. We partake in food. You might partake in a meal. You eat or drink something. You can partake in something by joining in an activity. You get involved in something. You're partaking in it. You can also partake of something by possessing or sharing certain natures and attributes of something. You, so it becomes a part of who you are. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, not setting the course of your life the way you used to before you didn't know that you needed to be saved. Then it says in verse 15, But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now Peter, in verse 16 is quoting from the Old Testament when he says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Because the Lord said that to Israel through Moses in the book of Leviticus. And in parallel with what we read in Hebrews, we also see here the concept of obedient children with the Father. Brings in that parallel with the chastening that's spoken to us about in Hebrews chapter 12. So the commandment, Be ye holy, for I am holy, is repeated in both Testaments. And if you were able to cast your mind back to our lesson a couple of weeks ago on understanding the Bible, when a commandment or an instruction is repeated in both Testaments, we need to pay particular attention to that. It's repeated. God has said it here. He said it here. It means this is for everybody. That's what it means it's for. Amen. And so it means that it's important to God. In fact, in Hebrews 12 and 14, the Lord said, without holiness, we won't see the Lord. Amen. So let's start with the statement that God made when He said, I am holy. Think about what that means to begin with because that's, that's our reference point. That's where we line up with. That's where we ascertain where we're at. That's where we get our direction from. Holiness is one of God's basic characteristics. In reference to God, the word holy means that He has absolute perfection and purity. Everything about Him is perfect. It's pure it cannot be corrupted. It cannot be compromised. Only God is holy in Himself and of Himself. He's the only person, only being that can make that statement. And because being holy is an inseparable part of who God is, it means that everything He is is holy. It means that everything He thinks is holy. It means that everything He says is holy. And everything He does is holy. Now, sometimes in our natural thinking, we struggle to reconcile some things that God does or some things that God has told mankind to do. We struggle to reconcile those things with what we consider 
to be God-appropriate behavior or things that we think, you know, that's how God should behave. The issue is never that God has compromised His holiness in any way. But the issue is the difference or the incongruence between the way I think and the way He thinks. And yet sometimes we seem to think that He should conform to us rather than the other way around. I'll give you an example. There are some people, and at a rational level, understandably so, that look at passages in the Old Testament where God commanded destruction of particular groups of people. And because that doesn't align with our thinking and our guidelines of God appropriate, we struggle to accept that. We struggle to understand how God and how we understand Him could give those commandments, how He could say, this is what you have to do. And if we're honest, as much as this sounds foolish to say, if we're honest, sometimes we actually think God was wrong to do those things. We question His judgment because it's contrary to the way that we think. But the question is, who is the judge of the whole world? God is. And sin is measured against God's holiness when it's judged. And if God is the judge of the whole world, that means that He can judge individuals. Think of Ananias and then his wife Sapphira. He can judge families. Think of Achan. He can judge tribes. He can judge nations. He can judge the whole world at whatever point in time and in whatever fashion he chooses and his holiness does not change. And we struggle to grasp that because our understanding is finite, whereas his understanding is infinite. And people say, but what about the women and children in those situations where God said, wipe out such and such a people? And before you try to answer that question, have you stopped to consider the flood? Sodom and Gomorrah? Hell? We have to understand that we all deserve that judgment. Every single one of us. We need to remember that the holiness of God took that judgment and placed it on Jesus Christ so that the grace and mercy of God might be extended to you and I. And we need to step back and go, Lord, my thinking is not your thinking. Because the holiness of God has never excused the sinfulness of man. God never gave anybody a pass. There had to be consequences. And we need to remember that He took our consequences. He bore our punishment upon the cross. And so what actually happened was the love of God provided a way for His holiness to be satisfied and not compromised, but also for us to escape. That's the love of God. We spoke about a little bit in our lesson about Colossians. One of the verses that is most well known in the Word of God throughout the world is John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have an incredible capacity as human beings to read every word of a verse and not recognize portions of it. Why did He give His only begotten Son? What was the purpose? That we might not perish. That we might not be destroyed. 
This is a holy God. This is not a popular message in the world that we live in. But this is the God of the book. Now, I appreciate, and I'm not going out of my way to offend anybody with this series. I'm hoping rather we'll be challenged, not be offended. But when we share the gospel with this world, we are trying to do so in a fashion that will reach them. But at the same time, we have to realize that the message must at some point include our desperate need for salvation. It cannot simply be about a better life or about families made whole or about deliverance from addictions. All of those things God will do and more. But the primary purpose of the gospel is that we might not perish. That's why I'm here this morning. I have a better life with God, absolutely. I can't imagine my life without God. I I can sit here all day and testify of His goodness and His blessings and His grace and His long-suffering and His mercy. But that's not why I'm here. That's the overflow. I'm here because I don't want to perish. And I believe you're here for the same reason, that we don't want to be judged by the holiness of God outside of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the gospel message. And even if my life here is miserable and I suffer continuously for being a believer, read the latter verses of Hebrews 11 if you want a picture of that, I must be willing to endure that because it's not just about this life. Because if I will trust Him, if I will be rooted and grounded and built up as we learned about earlier, then I'm going to escape hell. When this vapor of life is over, and the Bible says that's all it is, is a vapor. When this vapor of life is over, I'm going to escape the judgment that God's holiness requires, and so are you. That's the gospel message. And we've got to be careful that we don't tell people that, well, Jesus can change your life, and it's a no-obligation-free quote, and you just try him and see if you like him. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sins. I know that you've got to use wisdom. I know that you don't confront somebody with that the first time you meet them. But the message in there is that we are lost and we need to be found. That's the gospel message. That's what the holiness of God makes very, very clear to us. God was not manifest in the flesh so that I might have an improved life or become a better person. At least not, that's all. But Jesus came so that when he comes back, we might be ready to go with him and to escape what is coming on this world. That's the gospel message. He did not die to provide some self-help, better improvement, your best life now situation. He died so that when he comes and all humanity stands before him, I can lift my hands and worship him and I can say I was lost. I was in filth. I was in sin. But your blood washed away my sense and by your grace and your mercy I can stand here and receive my reward. That's the gospel message. You know, when you look back through church history, every revival in church history started with a powerful emphasis on repentance and prayer. Not on God can make you a better person. And that might be a little bit old school, but we need to get back to what the gospel message is all about. The flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the annihilation of the Canaanites cannot be compared with what is coming on this world when God says enough 
is enough. That's the gospel message. And all of that, all of that is connected to the statement, I am holy. I am holy. He cannot abide sin. Sin cannot enter his presence. It is not possible. It will be destroyed, which is why Jesus came to make a way for us where there was no way. Amen. We need to understand who it is that we talk about when we say we serve a holy God. You know, that we sometimes when the scripture talks about the fear of the Lord, we, we try to soften that a little bit and say it's really more about reverence, and it is about reverence. But I don't think there's anything unwise about being afraid of hell. I think a sensible, rational person should be afraid of hell. And if that requires that I have a fear of the holiness of God, you know, we live in a world where people talk about, you know, they, you know, angels appear to them, they chat to them like they're just riding the bus to work together. When I read the Bible, when an angel appeared to somebody, just an angel, not God, they fell on their face as if they were dead. They were terrified. We need to maintain that fear and that awe for the holiness of God. Amen. I'm hoping somebody will at least come back for part two. Amen. But then, after establishing that God is holy, we are instructed to be partakers of His holiness, to pursue after holiness, and to be holy. Now, we know, at least I hope most of us understand from the Scriptures, that of ourselves, in our own abilities, we cannot make ourselves righteous or holy. It is not possible. If it was, we wouldn't need Calvary. We cannot make ourselves holy. We cannot make ourselves righteous. If I had that ability, then Jesus' coming was a waste of time. And I don't mean any irreverence when I say that, but if we could make ourselves holy, we don't need a Savior. But the fact that we cannot is the reason we desperately need a Savior. That's why it is so important that we are born again of the water and the Spirit. John 3, verses 3 to 5 says, Jesus answered and said unto him, talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You know, when, when we talk about seeing or entering the kingdom of God, it's not that it's one of a list of options. If we're not in his kingdom, the only other option is sin and the consequences thereof. It's not like there's a list of tour packages where you can select one. There's God or the other option. That's all there is. Nicodemus, in his natural thinking, said to the Lord, How can a man be born when he's old? Can I somehow go back into my mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. They're emphatic statements. It's not, it is difficult or it will be harder. It's cannot. That's why when Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, gave us instruction of how that happens, in Acts 2 and 38, it says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And my question is, if you've never obeyed the Scripture and being born again of the Word and the Spirit, I would ask you this morning, why not? Why not? When we are born again, 
there are several things that take place that are significant to these lessons I'm going to be teaching. Firstly, we repent. We acknowledge our sin. We declare that we are sinners. We acknowledge that we've sinned. We, we turn away from sin toward God. We put an old sinful life to death. We, we do our best to walk away from the things that don't please God with a genuine regret for those things. Matthew 9 and 13 says, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's where it begins. Once we've repented, if we're going to obey what Peter said in Acts 2, we're baptized in Jesus' name. Why? Because it washes away our sin. By the power of His blood and His name, we take on the family name. Luke twenty four forty seven, And that repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name among all nations. Say, that's us. We're in one nation together. We've come from a whole bunch of nations to be here, but they're all included. It should be preached in all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Why does His name matter? Acts 4 and 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So we're baptized in Jesus' name, and then we are filled with the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. God places His Spirit within you, and you become a temple or a residence of the Holy Ghost. Acts 2 and 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now that's the new birth. That's, that's being born again of water and Spirit. But you're not only saved from your sin when you're born again, but you also become a part of the family of God. You become His child. It's not just like a vaccination you don't just get saved. You enter into a family relationship where you are part of His body and have an individual relationship with Him as your Heavenly Father. Romans eight fifteen to 16. And I can give these scriptures to anybody that wants them afterwards. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Amen. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. When He fills us with His Spirit, there's something about that that it's, if you don't have the Holy Ghost, it's difficult to describe until you get it. And if you haven't got it, I would urge you to ask Him for it because it's a free gift that He wants to give you. But when you're filled with the Spirit of God, there's something about it that just says, this is who I am. I was meant to be His child. I recognize, I feel that relationship as His child with my Heavenly Father. Amen. And when we are His children, filled with His Spirit, this is important, He then sees us as righteous and holy. Not that we have made ourselves that way. We can never, I'm going to emphasize this repeatedly throughout this series, we can never save ourselves. We can never wash away our sins. We can never make ourselves holy. And anybody who tells you that you can make yourself holy by following a list of rules or keeping a set of standards is misunderstanding the Scripture. It's about as gently as I can say that. I'd like to say it more strongly than that, but I'm trying to be polite. When we obey the Gospel, His blood washes us clean. His Holy Spirit fills us 
and he counts us as righteous. Romans 4 and 4 says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, speaking about righteousness, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. That same verse in another translation says, But also for us, it will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Because he paid the price for us, that bill, that debt of sin that we had that we could not wash away, his blood washed it clean. But then he also adds righteousness to our account. He imputes it. That word means it's, it's credited to us. We didn't earn it. You can't say, all right, Lord, I've put in 40, weeks of righteous, 40 hours of righteous living this week. Put some righteousness on my account. That's not how it works. We are born again of water and spirit by faith in the Word of God. And when He washes us and He cleans us and He fills us with His Holy Spirit, He sees us as righteousness, righteous and holy, and He puts that in our account. You don't earn righteousness or holiness. Amen. He paid the price for us. He paid for everything. So then, where, and this is where this series sort of comes together, where does what we think or what we say or how we live, etc., fit into this picture? We touched last week a little bit in Colossians on the, the doctrine or the belief of, of Gnosticism, which separates spirit from, from material. And one of the beliefs, one of the extremes of that belief was that spirit's good, flesh is bad, so how you live doesn't really matter. But that's not what the Bible would have us to know. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and starting at verse 16, says this, Know you not that you are the temple of God, you are His residence, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Verse 17, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God be cross with. Him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So we become responsible. He's made us clean. He's made us righteous. He sees us as righteous and holy. But then we become responsible for what happens with this temple. Some more verses. There's a whole list, but I'm only going to select a few. First Peter 1 and 15. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation has to do with lifestyle and conduct. That same verse in the New Living Translation says, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. Second Corinthians chapter 6 starting at verse 14. It says, But be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It's talking about a bond, a formal agreement with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion has light with darkness? What concord has Christ with Belial, which is just another name for the devil? And what part has he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? There's a comparison here. These are, these are things that are opposite. They should not be together. What, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell with them. I'll walk in them. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. Wherefore, or because of this, come out from among them. Who's the them? 
all the things that were listed in the previous verses. And be you separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And then ignoring the chapter break, having therefore these promises, what are the promises? He'll be our father. Dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God. So because we have the promise of being His children, we are to cleanse ourselves by being separate from some things. Another verse, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who has also given unto us His Holy Spirit. Modern translation of that verse says, God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives His Holy Spirit to you. So, I know there's, there's a lot to chew on there. These verses that we've covered give us, everybody say, that's me. And turn to your neighbor and say, it's you as well, so you don't feel left out. These verses give all of us the following responsibilities. Firstly, don't defile your temple. That's the first thing these verses tell us. It says we need to be holy in all manner of conversation or lifestyle and conduct. Don't be closely connected with things that are the opposite of God. You can't avoid the world. We, we live in this world. God is not suggesting we should go and live on a mountain in a cave and withdraw ourselves from society as long as there's Wi-Fi. You know, that's not the instruction. But the instruction is you shouldn't be closely connected or yoked together or in a concord or in communion with things that are the opposite of God. Rather, we should be separate from those things and He will receive us and be our Father. And because of that, we should continue to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, or that word means defiling impurities, of the flesh and spirit. Speaks to us of an ongoing process. Amen. So while, again, for repetitive emphasis, while we cannot and do not save ourselves, we do not make ourselves righteous and holy, we are expected to be involved in the ongoing process of becoming what Jesus wants us to be. I wish you could lie down at night, plug a cable into the wall, and just allow the Lord to add things to you while you sleep, and each day that process would take place, and as time went on, you just become more righteous and holy and closer to the Lord, but it does not happen without your will being involved. Your will was involved in your salvation. You chose to respond to the gospel. Now, he had to draw you. He was working on you. But you had to say, God, I'm sorry, I've sinned. You had to obey and be baptized in Jesus' name. Somebody says to you, how did you get baptized? You don't say, well, I don't really remember. It just happened. Somebody just took me in. You chose to say, would somebody baptize me, please? Your will was involved. Amen. So why are we involved in this ongoing process? To grow closer in our relationship with our Heavenly Father by becoming more like Him 
and keeping ourselves separated from the carnal, sinful lifestyle that we had to be saved from in the first place. In the coming weeks, we're going to consider how we apply scriptural principles, considering that if everything God thinks is holy and everything God says is holy, everything he does is holy, that we ought to desire to be and to do likewise. One more verse as I bring this to a close for this morning's lesson. Romans 12 and 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Paul wrote this verse, or this epistle. He didn't put the verses in. That came later. But Paul wrote this epistle to believers who were already born again, to whom God already saw as righteous and holy. And yet he, it says, I beseech you. The English word we have is beseech, which means to urge. Paul didn't use the word command, which he did in other places in the New Testament. But I believe Paul understood what was very important, that it is if, if it came only as an obedience from a commandment, then we were back under the law where we started. But Paul understood that it needed to come from the heart out of a desire for relationship with God. And so as we teach some things in coming lessons, they, we will be challenged, all of us. I will be challenged preparing the lesson. I promise you, when I, when I prepare to preach, I have to, I have to pray and have to ask the Lord to forgive me before I stand up here. And as we, we go into these coming lessons, as your pastor, I beseech you to consider them prayerfully. I can't command you. I'm not a policeman. Don't discard them, but consider them from the platform of wanting to please your heavenly Father. Because Paul went on to say in that verse that it is because of the mercies of God towards us. He said, consider how merciful God has been toward you and present your body a living sacrifice. Now, when you think of the parallel of a sacrifice, a sacrifice is all-consuming. They didn't partially offer an animal sacrifice. The whole thing was consumed on the altar. And it needs to be holy and acceptable or well-pleasing. And you and I are involved in that process. And when you and I approach the throne of God, whether it's in private or it's here together, our righteousness and our holiness comes from Him, not from us. But I want, and I hope you want, to love and to honor Him by not dragging what He's imputed unto us through the filth of this world. I want it to be acceptable to Him. I want it to please Him. Not because we're perfect, but from a heart that loves Jesus. Would you stand with me this morning? And let's just lift our hands and worship the Lord for a moment. Lord, we love you, Jesus. Lord, you've washed us in your blood. Lord, whiter than snow, your word says. Lord God, that you have filled us with your spirit. It is a holy spirit. You've made us holy vessels. You've put righteousness in our account. And Lord, we are so very, very aware that we cannot in any way make ourselves righteous or holy. But as your children, Lord, you have called us to holiness. You've called us to walk in a fashion that pleases you, that honors you, that separates us from the sin and the filth that you've saved us from simply because we love you and we want to please you, Lord Jesus. 
So I pray as we begin this series of lessons, as your people, that that would be the spirit that stirs in our hearts, Lord, a desire to please you and to honor you and to glorify you, not, not to keep lists of rules or regulations, but God, out of a heart that says, I present my body a living sacrifice. I want it to be holy. I want it to be acceptable, to be well-pleasing to you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Help us, Lord, in our limitations as we consider these things that we would apply.